0: All is revealed. Dorothy Sayers, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. The vintage episode for the week is The Man Who Would Be King by Rudyard Kipling. Be sure to check it out on Tuesday. If you've enjoyed the show, please become a monthly supporter and help us keep doing what we do. Please go to classictalesaudiobooks.com and become a monthly supporter for as little as $5 a month. As a thank you gesture, we'll send you a coupon code every month for $8 off any audiobook order. Give more and you get more. It's a great way to help us keep producing amazing audiobook content. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a supporter today. Mark your calendars for the Classic Tales Book Club. Our first meeting will be at 4 o'clock Pacific Time, 7 o'clock Eastern Time, on March 13th. We'll talk over Zoom about the podcast and what genre you'd like to hear more often. We'll see you then. I'm pivoting a bit on the Kickstarter for Bleak House. I just think it's too long for our first Kickstarter so I'm thinking of the next in the Arsene Lupin series, The Golden Triangle. I'll be making a custom enamel pin only available for supporters of the Kickstarter, among other fun deals. More details coming soon. And now, Clouds of Witness, Part 9 of 9, by Dorothy Sayers. Chapter 17. The Eloquent... Dead. Je connaissais Manon. Pourquoi m'affligez tant de malheurs que j'avais dû prévoir? I knew Manon. Why distress me so much of a misfortune that I must have foreseen? Manon Lescaut. The gale had blown itself out into a wonderful fresh day, with clear spaces of sky and a high wind rolling boulders of cumulus down the blue slopes of air. The prisoner had been wrangling for an hour with his advisers when finally they came into court, and even Sir Impey's classical face showed flushed between the wings of his wig. I'm not going to say anything, said the Duke obstinately. Rotten thing to do. I suppose I can't prevent you calling her if she insists on coming. Damn good of her. Makes me feel no end of a beast. Better leave it at that, said Mr. Murbles. Makes a good impression, you know. Let him go into the box and behave like a perfect gentleman. They'll like it. Sir Impey, who had sat through the small hours altering his speech, nodded. The first witness that day came as something of a surprise. She gave her name and address as Eliza Briggs, known as Madame Brigitte of New Bond Street, and her occupation as beauty specialist and perfumer. She had a large and aristocratic clientele of both sexes, and a branch in Paris. Deceased had been a client of hers in both cities for several years. He had massage and manicure. After the war, he had come to her about some slight scars caused by grazing with shrapnel. He was extremely particular about his personal appearance, and if you called that vanity in a man, you might certainly say he was vain. Thank you. Sir Wigmore, wrenching, made no attempt to cross-examine the witness, and the noble lords wondered to one another what it was all about. At this point Sir Impey Biggs leaned forward, and tapping his brief impressively with his forefinger, began, My lords, so strong is our case that we had not thought it necessary to present an alibi. When an officer of the court rushed up from a little whirlpool of commotion by the door, and excitedly thrust a note into his hand, Sir Impey read, coloured, glanced down the hall, put down his brief, folded his hands over it, and said, in a sudden, loud voice which penetrated even to the deaf ear of the Duke of Wiltshire, My lords, I am happy to say that our missing witness is here. I call Lord Peter Whimsey. Every neck at once craned, and every eye focused on the very grubby and oily figure that came amiably trotting up the long room. Sir Impey Biggs passed the note down to Mr. Murbles, "'and turning to the witness, "'who was yawning frightfully in the intervals of grinning "'at all his acquaintances, "'demanded that he should be sworn. "'The witness's story was as follows. "'I am Lord Peter Whimsey, brother of the accused. "'I live at 110 Piccadilly. "'In consequence of what I read on that bit of blotting paper, "'which I now identify, "'I went to Paris to look for a certain lady. "'The name of the lady... "'is Mademoiselle Simone Vondera. "'I found she had left Paris "'in company with a man "'named Van Humperdinck. "'I followed her, "'and at length "'came up with her in New York. "'I asked her to give me the letter "'Cathcart wrote "'on the night of his death. "'Sensation. "'I produced that letter "'with Mademoiselle Vondera's signature "'on the corner, "'so that it can be identified "'if Wiggy there "'tries to put it over you. "'Joyous sensation.' "'in which the indignant protests of prosecuting counsel were drowned. "'And I'm sorry I've given you such short notice of this, old man, "'but I only got it the day before yesterday. "'We came as quick as we could, "'but we had to come down near Whitehaven with engine trouble, "'and if we had come down half a mile sooner, "'I shouldn't be here now.' Applause, hurriedly checked by the Lord High Steward. "'My lords,' said Sir Impey, "'your lordships are witnesses,' "'that I have never seen this letter in my life before. "'I have no idea of its contents. "'Yet so positive am I that it cannot but assist my noble client's case "'that I am willing, nay eager, to put in this document immediately, "'as it stands, without perusal, to stand or fall by the contents. "'The handwriting must be identified as that of the deceased,' "'interposed the Lord High Steward. The ravening pencils of the reporters tore along the paper. The lean young man who worked for the Daily Trumpet scented a scandal in high life and licked his lips, never knowing what a much bigger one had escaped him by a bare minute or so. Miss Lydia Cathcart was recalled to identify the handwriting, and the letter was handed to the Lord High Steward, who announced, The letter is in French. We shall have to swear an interpreter. You will find, said the witness suddenly. "'that those bits of words on the blotting paper "'come out of the letter. "'You'll excuse my mentioning it—is this person put forward as an expert witness?' "'inquired Sir Wigmore witheringly. "'Right-ho,' said Lord Peter. "'Only, you see, it has been rather sprung on Biggie, "'as you might say. "'Biggie and Wiggy were two pretty men. "'They went into court when the clock— "'Sir Impey, I really must ask you "'to keep your witness in order.' "'Lord Peter grinned and a pause ensued, while an interpreter was fetched and sworn. Then at last the letter was read, amid a breathless silence. Riddlesdale Lodge, Stapley, N.E. Yorks, October 13th, 1920 blank. The letter is translated as follows. Simone, I have just got your letter. What am I to say? It is useless to entreat or reproach you. You would not understand or even read the letter. Besides, I always knew you must betray me some day. I have suffered a hell of jealousy for the last eight years. I know perfectly well you never meant to hurt me. It was just your utter lightness and carelessness and your attractive way of being dishonest which was so adorable. I knew everything, and I loved you all the same. Oh no, my dear, I never had any illusions." You remember our first meeting that night at the casino You were seventeen and heartbreakingly lovely You came to me the very next day You told me very prettily that you loved me And that I was the first My poor little girl, that wasn't true I expect when you were alone You laughed, to think I was so easily taken in But there was nothing to laugh at From our very first kiss I foresaw This moment I'm afraid I'm weak enough, though To want to tell you just what you have done for me You may be sorry But no If you could regret anything You wouldn't be Simone any longer Eight years ago Before the war I was rich Not so rich as your new American But rich enough to give you what you wanted You didn't want quite so much Before the war, Simone Who taught you to be so extravagant While I was away I think it was very nice of me Never to ask you Well Most of my money Was in Russian and German securities And more than three quarters of it Went west The remainder in France Went down considerably in value I had my captain's pay of course But that didn't amount to much Even before the end of the war You had managed to get through All my savings Of course I was a fool "'A young man whose income has been reduced by three quarters "'can't afford an expensive mistress and a flat in the Avenue Cléber. "'He ought either to dismiss the lady or demand a little self-sacrifice. "'But I didn't dare demand anything. "'Suppose I had come to you one day and said, "'Simone, I've lost my money. "'What would you have said to me? "'What do you think I did? "'I don't suppose you ever thought about it at all. "'You didn't care.' If I was chucking away my money and my honour "'and my happiness to keep you. "'I gambled desperately. "'I did worse. I cheated at cards. "'I can see you shrug your shoulders and say good for you. "'But it's a rotten thing to do, a rotter's game. "'If anybody had found out, they'd have cashiered me. "'Besides, it couldn't go on forever. "'There was one row in Paris, though they couldn't prove anything.' "'so then I got engaged to the English girl I told you about, "'the Duke's daughter. "'Pretty, wasn't it? "'I actually brought myself to consider "'keeping my mistress on my wife's money. "'But I'd have done it, "'and I'd do it again to get you back. "'And now you've chucked me. "'This American is colossally rich. "'For a long time you've been dinning into my ears "'that the flat is too small, "'and that you're bored to death.' Your good friend can offer you cars, diamonds, Aladdin's palace, the moon. I admit that love and honour look pretty small by comparison. Ah, well. The Duke is most obligingly stupid. He leaves his revolver about in his desk drawer. Besides, he's just been in to ask what about this card-sharping story. So you see, the game's up anyhow. I don't blame you. I suppose they'll put my suicide down to fear of exposure All the better I don't want my love affairs in the Sunday press Goodbye, my dear Oh, Simone, my darling My darling Goodbye Be happy with your new lover Never mind me What does it all matter? My God, how I loved you And how I still love you in spite of myself It's all done with You'll never break my heart again I'm mad Mad with misery Goodbye Chapter 18 The Speech for the Defence Nobody I myself Farewell Othello after the reading of Cathcart's letter, even the appearance of the prisoner in the witness-box came as an anti-climax. In the face of the Attorney-General's cross-examination, he maintained stoutly that he had wandered on the moor for several hours without meeting anybody, though he was forced to admit that he had gone downstairs at eleven-thirty and not at two-thirty, as he had stated at the inquest. Sir Wigmore Rynching made a great point of this, and in a spirited endeavour to suggest that Cathcart was blackmailing Denver, pressed his question so hard that Sir Impey Biggs, Mr. Murbles, Lady Mary, and Bunter, had a nervous feeling that learned counsel's eyes were boring through the walls to the side-room, where, apart from the other witnesses, Mrs. Grimethorpe sat waiting. After lunch, Sir Impey Biggs rose to make his plea for the defence. "'My lords, your lordships have now heard—' and I, who have watched and pleaded here for these three anxious days, know with what eager interest and with what ready sympathy you have heard the evidence brought by my noble client to defend him against this dreadful charge of murder. You have listened, while, as it were, from his narrow grave, the dead man has lifted his voice to tell you the story of that fatal night of the 13th of October, and I feel sure... "'you can have no doubt in your hearts "'that the story is a true one. "'As your lordships know, "'I was myself totally ignorant "'of the contents of that letter "'until I heard it read in court just now, "'and by the profound impression "'it made upon my own mind, "'I can judge how tremendously "'and how painfully "'it must have affected your lordships. "'In my long experience at the criminal bar,' I think I have never met with a history more melancholy than that of the unhappy young man whom a fatal passion for here indeed we may use that well-worn expression in all the fullness of its significance whom a truly fatal passion thus urged into deep after deep of degradation and finally to a violent death by his own hand. The noble peer at the bar has been indicted before your lordships for the murder of this young man that he is wholly innocent of the charge, must, in the light of what we have heard, be so plain to your lordships that any words from me might seem altogether superfluous. In the majority of the cases of this kind, the evidence is confused, contradictory. Here, however, the course of events is so clear, so coherent, that had we ourselves been present to see the drama unrolled before us, as before the all-seeing eye of God, we could hardly have a more vivid or a more accurate vision of that night's adventures. Indeed, had the death of Dennis Cathcart been the sole event of the night, I will venture to say that the truth could never have been one single moment in doubt. Since, however, by a series of unheard-of coincidences, the threads of Dennis Cathcart's story became entangled with so many others, I will venture to tell it once again from the beginning.' lest, in the confusion of so great a cloud of witnesses, any point should still remain obscure. Let me then go back to the beginning. You have heard how Dennis Cathcart was born of mixed parentage, from the union of a young and lovely southern girl with an Englishman twenty years older than herself, imperious, passionate, and cynical. Till the age of eighteen he lives on the continent with his parents, travelling from place to place seeing more of the world even than the average young Frenchman of his age, learning the code of love in a country where the crime passionnel is understood and forgiven, as it never can be over here. At the age of eighteen a terrible loss befalls him. In a very short space of time he loses both his parents, his beautiful and adored mother, and his father, who might, had he lived, have understood how to guide the impetuous nature which he had brought into the world. But the father dies, expressing two last wishes, both of which, natural as they were, turned out in the circumstances to be disastrously ill-advised. He left his son to the care of his sister, whom he had not seen for many years, with the direction that the boy should be sent to his own old university. My lords, you have seen Miss Lydia Cathcart, and heard her evidence. You will have realised how uprightly, how conscientiously, with what Christian disregard of self, she performed the duty entrusted to her, and yet how inevitably she failed to establish any real sympathy between herself and her young ward. He, poor lad, missing his parents at every turn, was plunged at Cambridge into the society of young men of totally different upbringing from himself. To a young man of his cosmopolitan experience, the youth of Cambridge— with its sports and rags and naive excursions into philosophy of knights, must have seemed unbelievably childish. You all, from your own recollections of your alma mater, can reconstruct Dennis Cathcart's life at Cambridge, its outward gaiety, its inner emptiness. Ambitious of embracing a diplomatic career, Cathcart made extensive acquaintances among the sons of rich and influential men. From a worldly point of view he was doing well, and his inheritance of a handsome fortune at the age of twenty-one, seemed to open up the path to very great success. Shaking the academic dust of Cambridge from his feet as soon as his tripos was passed, he went over to France, established himself in Paris, and began in a quiet, determined kind of way to carve out a little niche for himself in the world of international politics. But now comes into his life that terrible influence which was to rob him of fortune, honour, and life itself. He falls in love with a young woman of that exquisite, irresistible charm and beauty for which the Austrian capital is world famous. He is enthralled body and soul, as utterly as any Chevalier de Grieux, by Simone Vondera. Mark that in this matter he follows the strict continental code complete devotion, complete discretion. You have heard how quietly he lived, how rangé he appeared to be. We have had in evidence his discreet banking account, with its generous cheques drawn to self and cashed in notes of moderate denominations, and with its regular accumulation of sufficient economies quarter by quarter. Life has expanded for Denis Cathcart. Rich, ambitious, possessed of a beautiful and complaisant mistress, the world is open before him. Then, my lords, Across this promising career there falls the thunderbolt of the Great War, ruthlessly smashing through his safeguards, overthrowing the edifice of his ambition, destroying and devastating here, as everywhere, all that made life beautiful and desirable. You have heard the story of Dennis Cathcart's distinguished army career. On that I need not dwell. Like thousands of other young men, He went gallantly through those five years of strain and disillusionment to find himself left in the end with his life and health indeed, and so far happy beyond many of his comrades, but with his life in ruins about him. Of his great fortune, all of which had been invested in Russian and German securities, literally nothing was left to him. What, you say, did that matter to a young man so well equipped with such excellent connections, with so many favourable openings ready to his hand. He needed only to wait quietly for a few years, to reconstruct much of what he had lost. Alas, my lords, he could not afford to wait. He stood in peril of losing something dearer to him than fortune or ambition. He needed money in quantity, and at once. My lords, in that pathetic letter which we have heard read, nothing is more touching and terrible than that confession I knew you could not but be unfaithful to me. All through that time of seeming happiness he knew, none better, that his house was built on sand. I was never deceived by you, he says. From their earliest acquaintance she had lied to him, and he knew it, and that knowledge was yet powerless to loosen the bands of his fatal fascination. If any of you, my lords, have known the power of love exercised in this "'irresistible, I may say, this predestined manner. "'Let your experience interpret the situation to you "'better than any poor words of mine can do. "'One great French poet and one great English poet "'have summed up the matter in a few words. "'Racine says of such a fascination, "'C'est venus tout entier à sa proie attaché, "'and Shakespeare has put the lover's despairing obstinacy "'in two piteous lines.' If my love swears that she is made of truth, I will believe her, though I know she lies. My lords, Dennis Cathcart is dead. It is not our place to condemn him, but only to understand and pity him. My lords, I need not put before you in detail the shocking shifts to which this soldier and gentleman unhappily condescended. You have heard the story. In all its cold, ugly details upon the lips of Monsieur de Bois Gobiudin, and accompanied by unavailing expressions of shame and remorse in the last words of the deceased. You know how he gambled at first honestly, then dishonestly. You know from whence he derived those large sums of money which came at irregular intervals, mysteriously, and in cash, to bolster up a bank account, always perilously on the verge of depletion. We need not, my lords, judge too harshly of the woman. According to her own lights, she did not treat him unfairly. She had her interests to consider. While he could pay for her, she could give him beauty and passion, and good humour, and a moderate faithfulness. When he could pay no longer, she would find it only reasonable to take another position. This Cathcart understood. Money he must have by hook or by crook and so by an inevitable descent he found himself reduced to the final deep of dishonour. It is at this point, my lords, that Dennis Cathcart and his miserable fortunes come into the life of my noble client and of his sister. From this point begin all those complications which led to the tragedy of October 14th, and which we are met in this solemn and historic assembly to unravel. About eighteen months ago, Cathcart, desperately searching for a secure source of income, met the Duke of Denver, whose father had been a friend of Cathcart's father many years before. The acquaintance prospered, and Cathcart was introduced to Lady Mary Whimsey, at that time, as she has very frankly told us, at a loose end, fed up, and distressed by the dismissal of her fiancé, Mr. Goyles. Lady Mary felt the need of an establishment of her own, and accepted... Dennis Cathcart, with the proviso that she should be considered a free agent, living her own life in her own way, with the minimum of interference. As to Cathcart's object in all this, we have his own bitter comment, on which no words of mine could improve. I actually brought myself to consider keeping my mistress on my wife's money. So matters went on until October of this year. Cathcart is now obliged. "'to pass a good deal of his time in England with his fiancée, "'leaving Simone Vondera, unguarded, in the Avenue Kleber, "'He seems to have felt fairly secure so far. "'The only drawback was that Lady Mary, "'with a natural reluctance to commit herself "'to the hands of a man she could not really love, "'had so far avoided fixing a definite date for the wedding. "'Money is shorter than it used to be in the Avenue Kleber, "'and the cost of robes and millinery.' "'amusements and so forth, "'has not diminished. "'And meanwhile, "'Mr. Cornelius Van Humperdinck, "'the American millionaire, "'has seen Simone in the bois, "'at the races, at the opera, "'in Dennis Cathcart's flat. "'But Lady Mary is becoming more and more uneasy "'about her engagement. "'And at this critical moment, "'Mr. Goyles suddenly sees the prospect "'of a position, modest but assured, "'which will enable him to maintain a wife.' "'Lady Mary makes her choice. "'She consents to elope with Mr. Goyles, "'and by an extraordinary fatality "'the day and hour selected are 3 a.m. "'on the morning of October 14th. "'At about 9.30 on the night of Wednesday, October 13th, "'the party at Riddlesdale Lodge are just separating to go to bed. "'The Duke of Denver is in the gun-room. "'The other men were in the billiard-room. "'The ladies had already retired. "'When the manservant Fleming... "'came up from the village with the evening post. "'To the Duke of Denver he brought a letter "'with news of a startling and very unpleasant kind. "'To Dennis Cathcart he brought another letter, "'one which we shall never see, "'but whose contents it is easy enough to guess. "'You have heard the evidence of Mr. Arbuthnot, "'that, before reading this letter, "'Cathcart had gone upstairs gay and hopeful, "'mentioning that he hoped soon "'to get a date fixed for the marriage.' At a little after ten, when the Duke of Denver went up to see him, there was a great change. Before his Grace could broach the matter in hand, Cathcart spoke rudely and harshly, appearing to be all on edge and entreating to be left alone. Is it very difficult, my lords, in the face of what we have heard today, in the face of our knowledge that Mademoiselle Vondra crossed to New York on the Berengaria on October 15th, to guess? What news had reached Dennis Cathcart in that interval to change his whole outlook upon life? At this unhappy moment, when Cathcart is brought face to face with the stupefying knowledge that his mistress has left him, comes the Duke of Denver with a frightful accusation. He taxes Cathcart with the vile truth that this man, who has eaten his bread and sheltered under his roof, and who is about to marry his sister, is nothing more nor less than a card-sharper. And when Cathcart refuses to deny the charge, when he, most insolently as it seems, declares that he is no longer willing to wed the noble lady, to whom he is affianced, is it surprising that the duke should turn upon the impostor and forbid him ever to touch or speak to Lady Mary Whimsey again? I say, my lords, that no man with a spark of honourable feeling would have done otherwise.' my client contents himself with directing Cathcart to leave the house next day, and when Cathcart rushes madly out into the storm, he calls after him to return, and even takes the trouble to direct the footman to leave open the conservatory door for Cathcart's convenience. It is true that he called Cathcart a dirty scoundrel, and told him he should have been kicked out of his regiment, but he was justified. While the words he shouted from the window, "'Come back, you fool!' or even, according to one witness, you be fool have almost an affectionate ring in them. Laughter. And now I will direct your lordship's attention to the extreme weakness of the case against my noble client from the point of view of motive. It has been suggested that the cause of the quarrel between them was not that mentioned by the Duke of Denver in his evidence, but something even more closely personal to themselves. Of this contention not a jot or tittle, not the slightest shadow of evidence, has been put forward except, indeed, that of the extraordinary witness, Robinson, who appears to bear a grudge against his whole acquaintance, and to have magnified some trifling allusion into a matter of vast importance. Your lordships have seen this person's demeanour in the box, and will judge for yourselves how much weight is to be attached to his observations.' "'while we on our side have been able to show "'that the alleged cause of complaint "'was perfectly well-founded, in fact. "'So Cathcart rushes out into the garden, in the pelting rain he paces heedlessly about, "'envisaging a future stricken at once, "'suddenly barren of love, wealth, and honour. "'And meanwhile a passage-door opens "'and a stealthy foot creeps down the stair. "'We know now who it is. "'Mrs. Pettigrew Robinson,' "'has not mistaken the creak of the door. "'It is the Duke of Denver. "'That is admitted. "'But from this point we join issue "'with my learned friend for the prosecution. "'It is suggested that the Duke, "'on thinking matters over, "'determines that Cathcart is a danger to society "'and better dead, "'and that his insult to the Denver family "'can only be washed out in blood.' And we are invited to believe that the Duke creeps downstairs, fetches his revolver from the study table, and prowls out into the night to find Cathcart and make away with him in cold blood. My Lords, is it necessary for me to point out the inherent absurdity of this suggestion? What conceivable reason could the Duke of Denver have for killing, in this cold blooded manner, a man of whom a single word has rid him already and forever? It has been suggested to you that the injury had grown greater, in the duke's mind, by brooding, had assumed gigantic proportions. Of that suggestion, my lords, I can only say that a more flimsy pretext for fixing an impulse to murder upon the shoulders of an innocent man was never devised, even by the ingenuity of an advocate. I will not waste my time or insult you by arguing about it. Again it has been suggested that the cause of the quarrel was not what it appeared, "'and the Duke had reason to fear some disastrous action on Cathcart's part. "'Of this contention I think we have already disposed. "'It is an assumption constructed in vacuo, "'to meet a set of circumstances which my learned friend is at a loss to explain "'in conformity with the known facts. "'The very number and variety of motives suggested by the prosecution "'is proof that they are aware of the weakness of their own case.' "'Frantically they cast about for any sort of explanation "'to give colour to this unreasonable indictment. "'And here I will direct your lordship's attention "'to the very important evidence of Inspector Parker "'in the matter of the study window. "'He has shown you that it was forced from the outside "'by the latch being slipped back with a knife. "'If it was the Duke of Denver, who was in the study at eleven-thirty, "'what need had he to force the window?' he was already inside the house. When, in addition, we find that Cathcart had in his pocket a knife, and that there are scratches upon the blade such as might come from forcing back a metal catch, it surely becomes evident that not the Duke, but Cathcart himself, forced the window open and crept in for the pistol, not knowing that the conservatory door had been left open for him. But there is no need to labour this point. We know that Captain Cathcart was in the study at that time, for we have seen in evidence the sheet of blotting-paper on which he blotted his letter to Simon von dera, and Lord Peter Whimsy has told us how he himself removed that sheet from the study blotting-pad a few days after Cathcart's death. And let me here draw your attention to the significance of one point in the evidence. The Duke of Denver has told us "'that he saw the revolver in his drawer "'a short time before the fatal thirteenth, "'when he and Cathcart were together. "'The Lord High Steward. "'One moment, Sir Impey. "'That is not quite as I have it in my notes. Counsel, "'I beg your lordship's pardon if I am wrong. "'Lord High Steward. "'I will read what I have. "'I was hunting for an old photograph of Mary "'to give Cathcart, that is how I came across it. There is nothing about Cathcart being there. Counsel, If your lordship will read the next sentence. Lord High Steward. Certainly. The next sentence is, I remember saying at the time how rusty it was getting. Counsel, And the next? Lord High Steward. To whom did you make this observation? Answer. I really don't know, but I distinctly remember saying it. Counsel. I am much obliged to your lordship. When the noble peer made that remark, he was looking out some photographs to give to Captain Cathcart. I think we may reasonably infer that the remark was made to the deceased. Lord High Steward, to the house. My lords, your lordships will, of course, use your own judgment as to the value of this suggestion. Counsel. "'If your lordships can accept that Dennis Cathcart may have known of the existence of the revolver, it is immaterial at what exact moment he saw it. As you have heard, the table drawer was always left with the key in it. He might have seen it himself at any time when searching for an envelope or sealing-wax or what-not. In any case, I contend that the movements heard by Colonel and Mrs. Marchbanks on Wednesday night were those of Dennis Cathcart. While he was writing his farewell letter—' perhaps with the pistol before him on the table, yes, at that very moment the Duke of Denver slipped down the stairs and out through the conservatory door. Here is the incredible part of this affair, that again and again we find two series of events, wholly unconnected between themselves, converging upon the same point of time, and causing endless confusion. I have used the word incredible, not because any coincidence is incredible, "'for we see more remarkable examples every day of our lives "'than any writer of fiction would dare to invent, "'but merely in order to take it out of the mouth "'of the learned attorney-general, "'who is preparing to make it return, boomerang-fashion, against me. Laughter. "'My lords, this is the first of these incredible, "'I am not afraid of the word, coincidences. "'At eleven-thirty, the Duke goes downstairs "'and Cathcart enters the study.' the learned attorney-general, in his cross-examination of my noble client, very justifiably made what capital he could out of the discrepancy between the witness's statement at the inquest, which was that he did not leave the house till two-thirty, and his present statement, that he left it at half-past eleven. My lords, whatever interpretation you like to place upon the motives of the noble duke in so doing, I must remind you once more, "'that at the time when that first statement was made, "'everybody supposed that the shot had been fired at three o'clock, "'and that the misstatement was then useless "'for the purpose of establishing an alibi. "'Great stress, too, has been laid on the noble duke's inability "'to establish his alibi for the hours from eleven-thirty to three a.m. "'But, my lords, if he is telling the truth in saying "'that he walked all that time upon the moors without meeting anyone, "'what alibi could he establish?' He is not bound to supply a motive for all his minor actions during the twenty-four hours. No rebutting evidence has been brought to discredit his story, and it is perfectly reasonable that, unable to sleep after the scene with Cathcart, he should go for a walk to calm himself down. Meanwhile, Cathcart has finished his letter and tossed it into the post-bag. There is nothing more ironical in the whole of this case than that letter." while the body of a murdered man lay stark upon the threshold, and detectives and doctors searched everywhere for clues, the normal routine of an ordinary English household went unquestioned on. That letter, which contained the whole story, lay undisturbed in the post-bag, till it was taken away and put in the post as a matter of course, to be fetched back again at enormous cost, delay, and risk of life two months later "'in vindication of the great English motto "'Business as Usual.' "'Upstairs, Lady Mary Whimsy was packing her suitcase "'and writing a farewell letter to her people. "'At length Cathcart signs his name. "'He takes up the revolver and hurries out into the shrubbery. "'Still he paces up and down, "'with what thoughts God alone knows, "'reviewing the past, no doubt, racked with vain and remorse, most of all, "'bitter against the woman who has ruined him. He bethinks him of the little love-token, the platinum and diamond cat, which his mistress gave him for good luck. At any rate, he will not die with that pressing upon his heart. With a furious gesture, he hurls it far from him. He puts the pistol to his head. But something arrests him. Not that, not that. He sees in fancy his own hideously disfigured corpse. The shattered jaw, the burst eyeball, blood and brains horribly splashed about. No. "'let the bullet go cleanly to the heart. "'Not even in death can he bear the thought of looking so. "'He places the revolver against his breast and draws the trigger. "'With a little moan, he drops to the sodden ground. "'The weapon falls from his hand. "'His fingers scrabble a little at his breast. "'The gamekeeper who heard the shot is puzzled that poachers should come so close. "'Why are they not on the moors?' He thinks of the hares in the plantation. He takes his lantern and searches the thick drizzle. Nothing, only soggy grass and dripping trees. He is human. He concludes his ears deceived him and he returns to his warm bed. Midnight passes. One o'clock passes. The rain is less heavy now. Look in the shrubbery. What was that? A movement. The shot man is moving, groaning a little, crawling to his feet chilled to the bone, weak from loss of blood, shaking with the fever of his wound, but he dimly remembers his purpose. His groping hands go to the wound in his breast. He pulls out a handkerchief and presses it upon the place. He drags himself up, slipping and stumbling. The handkerchief slides to the ground and lies there beside the revolver among the fallen leaves. Something in his aching brain tells him to crawl back to the house. He is sick in pain. "'hot and cold by turns and horribly thirsty. "'There someone will take him in and be kind to him, "'give him things to drink. "'Swaying and starting, "'now falling on hands and knees, "'now reeling to and fro, "'he makes that terrible nightmare journey to the house. "'Now he walks, now he crawls, "'dragging his heavy limbs after him. "'At last the conservatory door. "'Here there will be help.' and water for his fever in the trough by the well. He crawls up on his hands and knees and strains to lift himself. It is growing very difficult to breathe. A heavy weight seems to be bursting his chest. He lifts himself. A frightful hiccuping cough catches him. The blood rushes from his mouth. He drops down. It is indeed all over. Once more the hours pass. Three o'clock. The hour of rendezvous draws on. Eagerly, the young lover leaps the wall and comes hurrying through the shrubbery to greet his bride-to-be. It is cold and wet, but his happiness gives him no time to think of his surroundings. He passes through the shrubbery without a thought. He reaches the conservatory door, through which, in a few moments, love and happiness will come to him, and in that moment he stumbles across the dead body of a man. Fear possesses him. He hears a distant footstep, but with one idea, escape from this horror of horrors. He dashes into the shrubbery, just as, fatigued perhaps a little, but with a mind soothed by his little expedition, the Duke of Denver comes briskly up the path, to meet the eager bride over the body of her betrothed. My lords, the rest is clear. Lady Mary Whimsey, forced by a horrible appearance of things into suspecting her lover of murder, undertook, with what courage every man amongst you will realise, to conceal that George Goyles ever was upon the scene. Of this ill-considered action of hers came much mystery and perplexity. Yet, my lords, while chivalry holds its own, not one amongst us will breathe one word of blame against that gallant lady. As the old song says, God send each man at his end such hawks, such hounds, and such a friend. I think, my lords, there is nothing more for me to say. To you I leave the solemn and joyful task of freeing the noble peer, your companion, from this unjust charge. You are but human, my lords, and some among you will have grumbled, some will have mocked on assuming these medieval splendours of scarlet and ermine, so foreign to the taste and habit of a utilitarian age. You know well enough that it is not the balm, the sceptre, and the ball, the sword, the mace, the crown imperial, the intertissued robe of gold and pearl, the farcid title, nor the tide of pomp that beats upon the high shores of the world. That can add any dignity to noble blood. And yet, to be held day after day the head of one of the oldest and noblest houses in England, standing here, cut off from your fellowship, stripped of his historic honours, "'robed only in the justice of his cause. "'This cannot have failed to move your pity and indignation. "'My lords, it is your happy privilege to restore to his grace, "'the Duke of Denver, these traditional symbols of his exalted rank. "'When the clerk of this house shall address you severally the solemn question, "'Do you find Gerald, Duke of Denver, Viscount St. George, "'guilty or not guilty of the dreadful crime of murder? "'Every one of you may.' with a confidence unmarred by any shadow of doubt, lay his hand upon his heart and say, Not guilty, upon my honour. Chapter 19. Who Goes Home? Drunk as a lord, as a class, they are really very sober. Judge Cluer, in court. While the Attorney-General was engaged in the ungrateful task of trying to obscure what was not only plain, but agreeable to everybody's feelings, Lord Peter hauled Parker off to a leon over the way, and listened, over an enormous dish of eggs and bacon, to a brief account of Mrs. Grimethorpe's dash to town, and a long one of Lady Mary's cross-examination. "'What are you grinning about?' snapped the narrator. "'Just natural imbecility,' said Lord Peter. "'I say—' Poor old Cathcart, she was a girl. For the matter of that, I suppose she still is. I don't know why I should talk as if she died away the moment I took my eyes off her. Horribly self-centred you are, grumbled Mr. Parker. I know. I always was, from a child. But what worries me is that I seem to be getting so susceptible. When Barbara turned me down, you're cured, said his friend brutally. As a matter of fact, I've noticed it for some time. "'Lord Peter sighed deeply. "'I value your candour, Charles,' he said. "'But I wish you hadn't such an unkind way of putting things. "'Besides, I say, are they coming out?' "'The crowd in Parliament Square was beginning to stir and spread. "'Sparse streams of people began to drift across the street. A splash of scarlet appeared against the grey stone of St. Stephen's. "'Mr. Mowbles's clerk dashed in suddenly at the door. "'All right, my lord, acquitted, unanimously.' And will you please come across, my lord?' "'They ran out. "'At sight of Lord Peter, "'some excited bystanders raised a cheer. "'The great wind tore suddenly through the square, "'bellying out the scarlet robes of the emerging peers. "'Lord Peter was bandied from one to the other "'till he reached the centre of the group. "'Excuse me, Your Grace. "'It was Bunter. "'Bunter, miraculously, "'with his arms full of scarlet and ermine, "'enveloping the shameful blue serge suit, "'which had been a badge of disgrace. "'Allow me to offer my respectful congratulations, Your Grace.' Bunter, cried Lord Peter. "'Great God, the man's gone mad! "'Damn you, man, take that thing away!' he added, "'plunging at a tall photographer in a made-up tie. "'Too late, my lord,' said the offender, "'jubilantly pushing in the slide. "'Peter,' said the Duke, "uh, thanks, old man.' "'All right,' said his lordship. Very jolly trip and all that. You're looking very fit. Oh, don't shake hands there. I knew it. I heard that man's confounded shutter go. They pushed their way through the surging mob to the cars. The two duchesses got in, and the Duke was following, when a bullet crashed through the glass of the window, missing Denver's head by an inch, and ricocheting from the windscreen among the crowd. A rush and a yell. A big bearded man struggled for a moment with three constables, then came a succession of wild shots and a fierce rush, the crowd parting, then closing in like hounds on the fox, streaming past the Houses of Parliament, heading for Westminster Bridge. "'He's shot a woman! He's under that bus. No, no, he isn't. Hey, murder! Stop him!' Shrill screams and yells, police whistles blowing, constables darting from every corner, swooping down in taxis, running. The driver of a taxi spinning across the bridge saw the fierce face just ahead of his bonnet, and jammed on the brakes as the madman's fingers closed for the last time on the trigger. Shot and tyre exploded almost simultaneously. The taxi slewed giddily over to the right, scooping the fugitive with it, and crashed horribly into a tram standing vacant on the embankment dead end. "'I couldn't help it,' yelled the taxi "'He fired at me! Oh, God, I couldn't help it!' Lord Peter and Parker arrived together, panting. "'Here, Constable,' gasped his lordship. I know this man He has an unfortunate grudge Against my brother In connection with the poaching matter Up in Yorkshire Tell the coroner to come to me For information Very good, my lord Don't photograph that Said Lord Peter To the man with the reflex Whom he suddenly found at his elbow The photographer shook his head They wouldn't like to see that, my lord Only the scene of the crash And the ambulance men Bright, newsy pictures, you know Nothing gruesome with an explanatory jerk of the head at the great dark splotches in the roadway. It doesn't pay. A red haired reporter appeared from nowhere with a notebook. Here, said his lordship. Do you want the story? I'll give it to you now. There was not, after all, the slightest trouble in the matter of Mrs. Grimethorpe. Seldom, perhaps, has a ducal escapade resolved itself with so little embarrassment. His Grace, indeed, who was nothing if not a gentleman, braced himself gallantly for a regretful and sentimental interview. In all his rather stupid affairs, he had never run away from a scene, or countered a storm of sobs with that maddening, "'Well, I'd better be going now,' which has led to so many despairs and occasionally to cold shot. But on this occasion the whole business fell flat. The lady was not interested. "'I am free now,' she said. I'm going back to my own people in Cornwall. I do not want anything now that he is dead. The Duke's dutiful caress was a most uninteresting failure. Lord Peter saw her home to a respectable little hotel in Bloomsbury. She liked the taxi, and the large glittering shops, and the sky signs. They stopped at Piccadilly Circus to see the Bonzo dog smoke his gasper, and the Nestle's baby consume his bottle of milk. She was amazed to find that the prices of the things in Swan and Edgar's window were, if anything, more reasonable than those current in Staple. "'I should like one of those blue scarves,' she said. "'But I'm thinking to not be fitting, and me a widow. "'You could buy it now and wear it later on,' suggested his lordship. "'In Cornwall, you know?' "'Yes,' she glanced at her brown-stuffed gown. "'Could I buy my blacks here? "'I shall have to get some for the funeral.' Just a dress and a hat and a coat, maybe I should think it would be a very good idea Now, why not? I have money, she said I took it from his desk It's mine now, I suppose Not that I'd wish to be beholden to him But I don't look at it that way I shouldn't think twice about it if I were you, said Lord Peter She walked before him into the shop Her own woman at last In the early hours of the morning, Inspector Sugg, who happened to be passing Parliament Square, came upon a taxi-man apparently addressing a heated expostulation to the statue of Lord Palmerston. Indignant at this senseless proceeding, Mr. Sugg advanced, and then observed that the statesman was sharing his pedestal with a gentleman in evening dress, who clung precariously with one hand, while with the other he held an empty champagne-bottle to his eye, and surveyed the surrounding streets. "'Hey,' said the policeman. "'What are you doing there? Come off of it.' "'Hello,' said the gentleman, losing his balance quite suddenly, "'and coming down in a jumbled manner. "'Have you seen my friend? Very odd thing. "'Damn odd! "'Espec' you know where to find him, what? "'When in doubt, to ask a policeman, what? A "'Friend of mine. A "'Very dignified sort of man. An opera hat. "'Freddy. Good old Freddy. "'Always answers to name.' It's like joy, old bloodhound. He got to his feet and stood beaming on the officer. Why, if it ain't his lordship, said Inspector Sugg, who had met Lord Peter in other circumstances. Better be getting home, my lord. Night air's chilly-like, ain't it? You'll catch a cold if someone of that. Here's your taxi. Just you jump in now. No, said Lord Peter. No, couldn't do that. Not without friends. "'Good old Freddy, never desert, friend. "'Good old Sugg wouldn't desert Freddy.' "'He attempted an attitude with one foot poised on the step of the taxi, "'but miscalculating his distance, stepped heavily into the gutter, "'thus entering the vehicle unexpectedly, head first. "'Mr. Sugg tried to tuck his legs in and shut him up, "'but his lordship thwarted his movement with unlooked-for agility "'and sat firmly on the step.' ''Not my taxi,'' he exclaimed solemnly. ''Freddy's taxi, not right. Run away with a friend's taxi. Very odd. Just went round the corner to fetch Fred's taxi. Freddy just went round the corner to fetch my taxi. fetch friend's taxi. Friendship's such a beautiful thing, don't you think so, Shug? Can't leave friend. Besides, says, dear old Parker.'' ''Mr. Parker?'' "'said the inspector apprehensively. "'Where?' "'Hush!' said his lordship. "'Don't wake baby there's good so. is a baby. "'Just shush you nestle. "'Don't eat nestle nicely.' "'Following his lordship's gaze, "'the horrified Sugg observed his official superior, "'cozily tucked up on the far side of Palmerston, "'and smiling a happy smile in his sleep. "'With an exclamation of alarm, "'he bent over and shook the sleeper. "'Unkind,' cried Lord Peter in a deep, reproachful tone. "'Disturb, uh, poor fellow, poor hard-working policeman. "'Never gets up till alarm goes, extraordinary thing,' he added, "'as though struck by a new idea. "'Why hasn't alarm gone off, Shug?' "'He pointed a wavering finger at Big Ben. "'They've for- forgotten to wind it up. disgraceful. "'All right to the t- t- times about it. Mr. Sugg wasted no words, but picked up the slumbering Parker and hoisted him into the taxi. Never, never, desert, began Lord Peter, resisting all efforts to dislodge him from the step, when a second taxi, advancing from Whitehall, drew up, with the Honourable Freddie Arbuthnot cheering loudly at the window. Look who's here, cried the Honourable Freddie. Jolly, jolly, jolly old Sugg, let's all go home together. That's my taxi," interposed his lordship with dignity, staggering across to it. The two whirled together for a moment, then the honourable Freddy was flung into Sugg's arms, while his lordship, with a satisfied air, cried home to the new taxi man, and instantly fell asleep in a corner of the vehicle. Mister Sugg scratched his head, gave Lord Peter's address, and watched the cab drive off. Then, supporting the honourable Freddy on his ample bosom, he directed the other man to convey Mr. Parker to 12A Great Ormond Street. Take me home, cried the Honourable Freddy, bursting into tears. They've all gone and left me. You leave it to me, sir, said the inspector. He glanced over his shoulder at St. Stephen's, whence a group of commons were just issuing from an all-night sitting. Mr. Parker and all, said Inspector Sugg, adding devoutly, thank God there weren't no witnesses. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Clouds of Witness, Part 9 of 9, by Dorothy Sayers. If you've enjoyed this episode, please become a supporter by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. Thanks for pitching in. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me next time, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper.